My name is Bert Weisbord. Before writing novels, I produced feature films, including Ghost Story, starring Fred Astaire, and Raggedy Man, starring Sissy Spacek. My first novel, Inside Passage, was published in 2013. It was followed by In Velvet, a standalone thriller set in Yellowstone Park in 2014. And in 2015, Teaser, the sequel to Inside Passage, was published. And in 2016, Minos, the third book in the Corey Logan trilogy, was published all by Rare Bird Books. Uh, and um, I'm very pleased to be talking to you, Steve, about both these books and your book, which I enjoyed very much. Well, thank you very much, Bert. I've, uh, I've actually read The Inside Passage in Velvet, and you did a wonderful job. Thank you. Um, I am... I am what they call a debut author. It's my first book, The Oath. Um, I am a retired orthopedic surgeon. I practiced in Phoenix for 30 years. And then I moved out to southeastern Indiana where my wife was from. We thought it might be a better place to bring up children. We had two children, and we moved here about uh, 14 years ago. We've enjoyed living out in the country. Uh, I get back and forth to... L.A. and Phoenix quite often, but when I get back here it is to Batesville, Indiana, it is really quite peaceful. It's a great place to write books, uh, uh, to relax. Uh, we live by a lake, and uh, it's just beautiful. My book uh, was inspired when I was on the Board of Medical Examiners in Arizona. I was not a, I had never fashioned myself to be a writer. I was more into science and medicine, and however, we came across a a doctor who I thought was a phony. I thought he was uh, one of these German doctors that had snuck into our country after the after the war, and um, he came before us because he had uh, deaths in a couple of patients. So we 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 went, and he was the one who inspired me to write a story, to make up a story, to travel Europe and do a little history. And it was, uh, it changed my life, actually, Bert, to, to sit down and write and do those things. So here I am. Well, you know, because of your book, I picked up and read part of Robert Lifton's book on the Nazi doctors last night. And... Yes. It begins with the oath of Hippocrates. I hadn't remembered that. And the huh. oath itself is so strong and powerful. Uh, it's a real... Uh, so I feel like there's a real connection between your work and his. In fact, his was the first book that I checked out to look at when I started doing my research. If you look at... And he has listed off the positions uh, that were uh, at the camps and how they went through the trials at Nuremberg and what happened to them. Um, and so that the inspiration in terms of research started with Lipton. Um, well, he was my professor in college and a mentor to me, and we became friends. In fact, I saw him just recently, and I think he's interested in a lot of the same things that you're interested in. Um, so that was a nice connection. Um, uh, tell me, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you uh, go forward. You had a thought in your mind. 
Yeah, I was interested because your book seems to me to be very carefully and thoroughly researched, and I was interested in that process and how it evolved for you. Well, um, when I first, uh, getting back into the original time where I, when I met this physician, we were sitting at a board meeting, and I'm opening his file, and I had this big swastika stamped on his diploma, you know, it set me back, being Jewish and all, it, uh, you know, you look at that. But there were some other very disturbing things about him that crossed my mind. First of all, he graduated from medical school on May 3rd, 1945, uh, from the University of Kiel, Kiel, Germany, which was the repair base for uh, U-boats and was bombed repeatedly by the British. And in fact, over 50% of the city was destroyed. And at that time, nobody was having graduations in Kiel, Germany. And secondly, when he came to this country, he changed his name, went through a couple of different residencies before he set up practice in Arizona. So I, I, I tried to get a newspaper reporter interested in the story and say, you know, I believe this is one of those Nazi doctors. It would be a good research project for you. He came back the next day and said, eh, we can't do this. My editor says that's how we get sued. And... Uh, well, I didn't want to get sued, but I, I thought, well, maybe I could look at this, make up a story. And at that point, I said, I better do some research. And that's how the research started. Now, remember, this was back in 1989. This is before the Internet was big. So I went to the library in the middle of the day, wondering who else was at the library in the middle of a weekday. And there are some strange characters, and of course, I became one of them. As time progressed, and I actually did most of my research after the year 2000 after I retired. The internet was just wonderful. You could look up any fact you wish to and I used the internet and then we traveled about four times to Europe and I visited each place that is mentioned in the book uh, so I can have a visual image of it when I was writing. And that's how it worked out. The internet is amazing for research. I When I was Finishing Minos, the last book in the Corey Logan trilogy. Um, you know, I had all, done all this research on Greek mythology, and I had started it some time ago. Uh, and I put, uh, I had all these tabs and these books with, you know, like Theseus, and I would write down the pages that I could refer to him on. And then I realized that all I had to do was go to the internet and look up Theseus, and it would all be on one page. <laughs> And it, 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 it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, how I did mine. And then when you went to Europe, what specifically did you do? Did you go to meet with people, or did you just go to uh, specific places that you know had historical significance? What was your plan? My plan was to first of all pick up a car, and we did that. We bought a car in Europe, and then we drove through Germany uh, to Munich. We went to Dachau. We drove along the countryside, stopped at some small villages, once, one of which I mentioned in the book, Wolfstrom Isha, and then went on to Kiel and Hamburg, as I mentioned. And I wanted to look at the University of Kiel, see what it looked like. And in fact, I emailed the uh, chancellor there, and I was asking him, I was asking him what was happening at the university at the end of the war. 
And his answer back was sort of chilling. It said, who wants to know? <laughs> Which I thought was a little strange. So anyway, we visited there, and then I went up. We had some friends that were up near Frankfurt. We drove through them, went uh, back through France. Uh, we did, on another trip, went to Lyon, to Nice, to the areas that we mentioned in the text. Um, I was interested in your differentiation between the way the French and the Italians dealt with the Jews. That was interesting to me. That was something I, I had not realized, and I don't think a lot of people realized it. Yeah, no, I certainly hadn't realized that. Uh, well, well, how did people respond when they learned what you were writing about? Were people helpful? Yeah, yeah, I think people were helpful. They, uh, I, I, um, I think one of the more more interesting things is that I was flying on a plane between Phoenix and L.A. And sitting next to me was an attorney. And I was sort of telling him about a book I was interested in writing. And he turned to me and said, you know, I have a client you should meet. And it turned out to be the same doctor that we had interviewed at the Board of Examiners. Oh, my goodness. So I did go and interview him twice. Um... And I got some information from him. And, of course, just like many other people from Germany I had met or people who wanted to deny, they denied that they knew what was going on. And, in fact, there's a book out. I don't remember the exact title that talked about they should have known. And he kept on telling me, well, there's this book out that we should have known. He hadn't seen it, so I sent him a copy of the book. But... um, you know, when you visit places like Dachau, that is located about a mile from the city center of Dachau. Now, Dachau did not have uh, gas chambers, but they had uh, they had furnaces in which they crematorium and they burned the bodies. And the smell of burned bodies is something very specific. You know, you would never forget it. And you know that the people there in Dachau knew what was going on. If they had plumbers or electricians come and repair things, they would know what's going on. And probably even in Auschwitz, they would have people from the local communities that would probably help come and repair things. People knew what was was going on. Um, So the the denying that they knew is something. Although in Germany nowadays, as I understand it, it's a crime to be a Holocaust denier itself. You could uh, get a jail term for that. Is but, that right? I didn't know that. <laughs> that's true. So anyway, that's uh, the, in, in Germany today, every child in the schools, is it is necessary for them to go on a tour of one of the concentration camps, which is interesting. I think, I think they're, the Germans have stood up better than most countries have it to what happened during the war. Uh, I know like the French, the French sort of, don't make a big deal out of it because their people actually assisted the Germans in bringing people to concentration camps. And they don't have a lot of historical memorabilia. There's a place called Dranzig, which was a sort of a uh, transit camp before people were sent to Buchenwald or Auschwitz or uh, uh, Terezin, they would stay there. And this was located about 15 miles outside of Paris. So I went and visited there thinking, of course, they're going to have some, quote, 
of mementos, a memorial about it. And they did have a single rail car with a statue, but it was very hard to find. So it it is interesting how various countries look back upon their role in the, in the war. So, so how many times and, did you go? To- how many times you go back to Europe? Times? I think we were in Europe about four times. So you've really lived with this for a long time and been thinking about it for a long time, haven't you? A long time. Like I said, it started about 89, but I really didn't get working on it full time or a greater amount of time until uh, about 2002. So. And how long did it take yeah. you to write the book? Probably, I would say it was really about 10 years for me to write it. I wasn't very quick. Um, It was during my retirement time. You know, in contrast to me, I noticed that you knocked off these other three books very quickly. Well, I didn't think... Yeah, no, I had been thinking about these books for a long time, too. Um, And, you know, I had notes and research and... You know, in Velvet, for example, I started taking my kids to Yellowstone when they were young. You know, we would go fishing, and we would come every year to Montana. And uh, that's what got me thinking about what if there was sort of uh, unusual animal behavior in the park. Uh, So by the time I really sat down to write it, it came pretty quickly. Well, but In Velvet and Inside Passage were written... In, in a close time, uh, close close to each other. Yeah, although uh, uh, I had a an earlier draft of uh, Inside Passage that I put aside and I came back to, uh, and so uh, that helped with uh, getting them done quickly. Now, now, did you have a person in mind who was Corey Logan inside passage? Did you have a person uh, no, that you? No, but I did. I did do research with. Uh, I was interested in. There are a lot of. I had moved to Bainbridge Island with my family, and there were a lot of. I met some young women who fished on saners in Alaska in the summer, and that's very. Uh, it's both dangerous and long hours and, you know, harsh weather. And these are interesting women. You know, they make a lot of money in a short period of time, but they're generally working uh, as much as seven days a week, depending on, you know, the the run of the salmon runs. And, uh, you know, it's very, uh, well, it's tough work. And I was interested in pairing this kind of, strong, very able in the outdoors woman with a guy who was, you know, not so capable in the world. You know, he sideswipes parked cars all the time. And, uh, but who is expert at sort of navigating interior life, emotional life. And uh, that's what evolved. And that's at the center of their relationship is the way that they complement each other in these ways. And, and and the politics that were involved, uh, Abe's mother and uh, 
guy she was working with, did you have any um, model of a person in mind, or were these totally fake? No, I mean, you know, whenever I write a political character, I'm all, often thinking of various Hollywood types that I knew, because I think there's actually a lot yeah. of similarities between people who are, you know, successful in the movie business and successful in, in politics, but it was not a single person. I mean, it was a, a I sort of a sense of people who are able to effortlessly be warm and uh, convincing and seem genuine when, in fact, it's not what they're feeling or thinking. So, so Carrie, Corey, I'm sorry, is the strong female lead, and in Velvet, it's Rachel. But she isn't as physically strong, but she's emotionally strong I see too yeah and she's very able in in the out of doors too I mean to follow grizzly yeah. bears around Yellowstone Park takes a certain amount of uh, uh, sort of awareness of how things work in nature That's and true. I enjoyed That's that true. about her yeah I mean in the way Corey yeah, it's fun sort to, of... it is fun to develop a character it is fun to develop this not ideal character, but you're really building a character, whether I do it in my book or you book, your book. And that's probably one of the things of storytelling. Well, it's one of the great satisfactions. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when your character starts to surprise you, (laughs) it's like, you know, writing the third book in the Corey Logan trilogy, things happen that I hadn't anticipated. And it's always very yeah. interesting because the characters sort of take well, on a life of their own. Well, when I was uh, studying to learn how to write, when I made the decision to really write the book, I took I took an online course. I went to several other courses. And then I went, did a writer's residence with uh, a man named D.W. Cannon in Lompoc, California. He was a screenwriter for movies. And he had some Emmy, uh, he had some Academy Award, I can't remember, and then after that, the world died, and he was stuck out there probably doing very little. Anyway, I did this with him. And um, you learn certain things. You learn that, you know, if you have a plot in mind, you must have four or five different subplots. And the subplots seem to develop by yourself, by themselves, with the characters, as we talked about. Um, in my book, I have a lot of people come up to me, and they like... They like the man who does the revenge, Martin. My wife loved Martin. Yeah. I never thought of him as a lovable character. He wasn't my top character. But people like Martin. It's, it's interesting how that works. Yeah, and I... Yeah, and the more that I write, the more interested I become in secondary and even tertiary characters because I feel like that adds a certain... Texture. I mean, I don't know if you remember an inside passage, but Lester and Riley, who are yeah. you know, bad bad guys. I spent a lot of time thinking bad about guy. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 we did have some bad guys there. That's true. I was um, proud of them. I got that. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work on my second book. And I'm going through the thought processes of uh, what do I want? How much research do I really want to get involved with? How much 
it'll be historical fiction again. I, mean, I think I'm going to main, make my main character Martin because in the book The Oath, he has a period of time in which he is not mentioned in the book. So there's a period of time that I could have him do his own thing. So um, what is your second book I, going to be about thematically? It'll be about uh, the Jewish Brigade. And that was the brigade, uh, the English brigade that was put together towards the end of the war. They fought somewhat in, in Italy, but then after that, they had two main jobs. One was to help take the, people, the Jewish people out of Europe and bring them to uh, Palestine, avoiding the British, who had a strict restriction on the number of people that would come. And their second job was to go and round up and perhaps kill some of these Nazi the Nazis that had escaped persecution or before they got persecution. And that's huh, interesting. sort of Martin's specialty. So I'm, uh, and it has a lot of interest. There's been a couple of books written about it. There's even a, there was even a short movie made about it, but I think it has, it's a portion of history that I did not know much about. So I thought, well, let's just ramp that up, create the character, have Martin do some things that he's done before uh, bring in uh, a female, uh, bring a female uh, that uh, worked in the resistance in Czechoslovakia. And I, I have some things that are fun to start researching. So that's that's what I'm working on now. Well, I think it's always fun to bring characters back and. Uh, you know, in the in a, in a book I'm working on now, I bring back Riley from Inside Passage uh, in a okay. in a different iteration, and uh, he's a more important character. Uh, so that that is, uh, you know, you find that when you create these people, I'm sure you're finding the same thing. Uh, they stay with you, and they're interesting, and you want to learn more. Yeah. About them. Okay. At first, they're a name, and then you live with them, and you think about them, and you talk about them. You know. So is, has where is the, the new book going to be set? Is it going to be set in Europe, too? It'll be set in Europe. I think it'll start off in Italy, um, and he will travel back and forth through Europe, probably get into Palestine, and I'll probably end it sometime about the War of Independence in 1948, I think. At least that's my thoughts. It's going to be a much shorter time span than my first book, The Oath, which covers 40 years or so. Uh, this will, and it, I'll just, we'll just have to see how it works out, you know. Yeah, I, I find that in my books, I generally, they take place in a very short time frame. I think it's, complicated to write over many years uh, and I uh, think you've handled that well uh, the uh, uh, you know except you know like an inside passage there's a, a prologue that happens way before the book begins but the bulk of the book is very compressed um, but you know your book takes us somewhere that we've never been you know it takes me to the inside passage, someplace that I've probably passed through on a cruise boat way out to sea and never saw anything. But it, it's it's sort of an interesting place. And then and then your your description of the Yellowstone Woods 
could only be made by somebody who has spent so much time there, which I know you have. But as I'm reading this book, I'm saying, God, this guy really knows every tree and trail and pond and uh and he's probably seen fires there, you know. So it was interesting. Yeah, so, I know. Uh, so, I, you know, that, care a lot I guess you're right about. You said what again? Pardon me? I, I lost you care your about it? Oh yeah, I can't. You, you know, the something. the places the places are like characters in the book. I mean, the they really do figure into. Um, the texture of the book in important ways, both the Inside Passage and uh, uh, Yellowstone. Those are two good examples of that. Um, I've always thought that I used to enjoy reading Mishner. Yeah. Mishner would take you to places, well, you would never get to like the source early on, but but it's, it's fiction mixed with history. So it's like going out for a really good meal and your stomach is full afterwards, and you've been able to have a good dessert, and you feel good when you finish reading it. And I, I, I really, that was one of the things that I was trying to get. And, and you do the same because you take people to places that they've not been, or to kinds of life they've not been through, um, which is good. And we all are escape. We try to escape through our reading. Too often, television interferes with that, but. Sitting down with a good book on a quiet day in a comfortable chair without anything external, you know, you may as well, you you are traveling through time and space between your eyes and the book. And it's a very different experience than uh, any other. And if it works, it's quite uh, wonderful. Um, so... The, uh, you know, you think about that a lot when you make movies because, um, you know, people go to the movies to have that kind of transporting experience, and you've got to do it in two hours. And uh, it's an entirely different kind of medium. Uh, but I think that my work in movies really influenced my writing because, um, well, not just dialogue, but the sense of taking people to a different place, which is so much a part of movie making. Right, and you, it's your, your, it's the travel, it's the costumes, it's the design, everything plus the actors. Um, it it does do that. I was listening to an audio book the other day. Actually, I was on an airplane, and there was they had four audio books. And I, I'm thinking, you know, maybe my book's going to go into an audio book. And the first audio book reminded me of old radio because it had the background music and sounds and door slams and stuff like that. And I thought that was interesting because it was almost like closing your eyes and being in a movie theater. Huh. Um, and, you know, I, perhaps that might come out more, but I... I thought it was very interesting to listen to. And you remember the old radio shows. I loved them, you know. It's, uh, and, and maybe it'll come across. Then I went and listened to, listened to a couple of other books. One was by the author herself, who was a comedian, so she could do it. One was a you know a regular author. But adding the music, just that extra music and some sound effects, 
to an audio book made it really stand out. Interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. I listened to uh, the audio book for Minos, the third book in the trilogy, and it's a really very different experience than reading. And it's very, um, they did a good job. And uh, I'm not an audio book person. So, you know, aside from having tried to read Inside Passage, which uh, was challenging. Uh, I'm not used to this, but I think that it's uh, more and more people. I mean, they just listen to them in their cars when they're driving, and they really get into it. My wife, Dorothy, listens to audiobooks all the time before she goes to bed. Yeah, I was. I, I used to do uh, clinic trips in Arizona on the Navajo Reservation. I had a couple of orthopedic residents and some therapists and x-ray technicians with us. And we got into a series of audiobooks going up there because it was like a five-hour drive. When I'd stop, people didn't want me to turn off the car, you know, huh. that good. It was, and yeah, it can be that. It can be that. But let's see if somebody's going to get into it and make more of a development with the music in the background to audiobooks, and that might be even be bigger sellers, you know. Well, Tyson does that, you know, with some of the books that he publishes. He's done some musical, oh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, uh, backgrounds. And, you know, he was a musician. And uh, uh, so I know that, you know, I haven't really heard them, but he has talked about them. And I'm sure that that's the whole area that uh, where there's a lot more to do, just with sound effects and music, so on and so forth. I, I can see that on a book leading somebody to say, hey, this would really be a great movie if you visualize it with the sound effects. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I know that they're making these little, I don't know, there, there's a word for them, and I'm, it's slipping my mind, but they're making these little podcasts that are a way of selling the books books to movies, you know, which is instead of submitting the book, you submit this little um, audio-visual you know, and that has images as well, uh, and portions of the book. Uh, Interesting. So, do you think you'll ever get back into doing movies again? Well, I just wrote the pilot for Inside Passage with a uh, with a TV writer, and really, it's completely, yeah, it's a completely different experience than writing a book. Uh, first of all, you're collaborating with somebody. And all of film work is collaborative, even if you go off by yourself to write the screenplay. Um, but, you know, you have this limited time frame. And, you know, a book has this whole interior life, and you just can't put that in your descriptions, and you have to move much quicker in 60 minutes. And,. I think it came out pretty well, but it was fascinating the process of writing it. And as the author, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, my co-writer kept saying you have to kill your darlings. You know, it's like you know all the little things that you love they just find, never find their way in. Now, which panel were you on the genre panel, or were you on the panel that was discussing books and I movies? Was on the, I can't recall the, the, the books and movies. You know. Yeah, and that was interesting to hear them talk because they say that once you give up the book, the screenwriter takes it and you've sold the book, it's over. You're, you're done, right? 
Although well, this was a pretty this was a pretty cynical crowd. I mean, I have to say that it doesn't always work that way. I mean, there's lots of examples, and I mentioned like Silence of the Lambs, or you know, right. uh, where where it really is a faithful, and sometimes like uh, the Godfather, even better than the book. Um, I mean, I guess the author might not agree with me, but, you know, there's certainly cases of wonderful adaptations. But it's hard. And it's certainly most, you know, I know this from the the movie side, most screenwriters um, feel like their work is constantly being rewritten by other people. And, uh, you know, an actor comes in and brings in his favorite writer and, you know, if you start with a book and then you get a screenwriter and then you get two more screenwriters, by the time it's gone through four different hands, it's unlikely to really be true to the essence of what was in the book in the first place, aside from all the problems of adaptations. Is it is it difficult for a, an author to then transform and tr- turn it into a screenwritten story? Is that hard? That yeah, I think I I think it happens a lot. I mean, a lot of authors uh, write screenplays from their books, but you know, it's complicated. It's always you know, um, I know just from my own experience uh, that you make lots of compromises, and it's uh, you know, so you'd rather do it yourself than have somebody else do it, but it, it's not easy. So it's it's cut and flash, and just to get it in the time frame, and to you know, I'm sure in books we we spend pages describing what you're seeing. So in a screenplay, you can actually make up the set to look like what you've been describing. I guess that that must work. But you know, the, the, there is another side to this, and I was aware of this as we were working on the pilot for Inside Passage. In the pilot, which tries to tell the whole story, I mean, we just cut out characters that we just didn't have time for them. But if the pilot gets picked up, and you're able to do twelve episodes, or you're able to do it in a, any kind of long form format, you can go beyond the book. You can add new things, and you can develop characters that were really not that important in the book. I have no experience with that, but uh, you know. But you take things like you know the the Wire or the Sopranos, or you know these long form. Then I don't. Neither of those were based on a book, but um, uh, you can see the possibilities. Well, interesting. Everybody's told me that. Uh, not everybody. I've, I've heard from people that my book, The Oath, would make a good series. And, you know, I don't know. And I, I will have to wait and see and see who or may show interest in it or not. Obviously, the first thing you want to do is get your book out there. Um, so we'll see. Life well, I've worked with, can be uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, it's it would be fun to you know, think about that because, you know, I've worked on a lot of hard adaptations. Ghost Story was a very hard adaptation because Ghost Story is such a big book and there's so much in it. But I also worked on Time and uh, Time and Again, uh, which is a, a time travel, going back to New York uh, in time. Right. Um, 
it was a very rich and complicated story. I worked on a number of adaptations, and um, I think that it, you, you you try to be true to the characters and the the essence of it, but it's hard to um, to do that with big sprawling stories. And you have a big sprawling story. It's, it's easier if you have. A smaller one. <laughs> well, you know, when I write the book, I wasn't planning on a movie, right? That's you're just writing a book, and what may come, may come. Uh, well, and I do think that this whole area of, and I call it long-form television, I don't think that's what it's called anymore. I'm sort of out of date. But is hugely promising for big stories and with, you know, big canvases like your book. And, uh, um, you know, if you have 10 hours, you can do enormous amount of stuff. I know that. I know that. And and there have been some good war stories that have been produced over time that grew a lot of attention, a lot of attention. So then when, when a series comes out like that, I'm sure it makes you sell more books because your name is out there. More books get sold. Absolutely. Well, and you know, the TV audience is so much bigger than uh, at least my readership. And uh, uh, it's it's great for the books. And, you know, I have a trilogy. So, you know, if you get one made, then you have a lot of other material to draw from. That's good. And and when you're doing things like a trilogy, it must be... I would imagine, because like I'm saying, the second book I'm writing appears to be easier to write than the first book, but I guess you you get better at it. I, mean, I guess that's the answer. Well, I think that's a, uh, well, at least that's, I feel like that. I feel like it's the opposite of producing movies. When you produce movies, you're doing crisis management most of the time, and the more you do it, you don't get better at it. It sort of burns you out. I mean, there's only so many uh, fires that you can put out without sort of, oh, no, here here we go again. Writing for me is the opposite. The more you do it, the better at it you get and the better you feel about it. I just feel like it's so very satisfying to be able to do things with less effort. Um, yeah. You know, I've had uh, I had a couple of different editors help me with the book, and one of the first editors, rather than change a word, would try to change a sentence. And then I looked at it, and I was reading it, and I said, "Well, that doesn't sound like me." And I guess that I guess that's the definition of a voice. Sure. Uh, uh, and we all develop our own voice, and we don't recognize what it is until we somebody tries to change it, you know. Uh, I, was, well. uh, I was I was reading Sean McDaniel's book, um, you know, the fellow that was with us. Uh, yeah, no, I read his book. Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, man, this guy's got a specific voice, which actually sort of sounds like him. You could see the voice, and I could see his face. Interesting. That, that was interesting. Um, Nobody can teach you how to develop a voice. That's something that you, like we all speak, how we speak. Well, your book has a voice. I mean, but I can tell that it's, 
the beginning of a continuum. I mean, you're very careful um, as you get more experienced. I think um, it will be less, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It'll flow a little quicker. Uh, be less oh, easier. It'll come out of me, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. And then well, we it's a great accomplishment. Oh, I appreciate it. It's a great I accomplishment. I, 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 so I think we've... I think the fact that you've been in the film industry and you've written books, you're, you're going to be a mentor to many people, I'm sure. Well, um, I... I do know that I enjoy it very much, and I think the writing gets better. And I'm sure that that's going to be the case for you, too. And I really think uh, you deserve a lot of credit for taking on a very tough first novel and pulling it off so well. And I wish you all the best on your new book. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, 